1: consultant, expert on change and resistance, and president of Maurer & Associates. Rick shares insights from his book, Seizing Moments of Possibility, Ways to Trigger Energy and Forward Momentum
0: on Your Ideas and Plans, and much more. We hope you enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome to the Action Catalyst. This is Dan Moore. I'm very excited to have Rick Maurer with us today. Rick is somebody that also specializes in the idea of change in organizations, but he goes farther. He identifies why there's resistance to change, and even more important, the importance of each one of us having a charged-up internal battery and how we can recharge that from time to time. I'm so looking forward to learning from what he's got to say today. So, Rick, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thanks, Dan. It's good to be here. Well, we'd love to always start with our guests to share a little bit of their own bio, your own perceptions, looking back on some of the key pivot points and key influences that Helped you get to the position of influence where you are today? Sure thing. Actually, I went to music school. And the reason that has,
1: has a real application today, what I was trained to do was to teach music in schools to beginners. So I had to be able to play at a basic level, everything, every band and orchestral instrument so that I could teach a 10-year-old that you handed a clarinet, like what to do. So they weren't just squawking and crying and all, and musical instruments can be very complex. And so the whole philosophy of this school, how do you make it simple enough so that they get it? And then they can start building on that. And I didn't realize until years after I got on music school, they invited me back to work with a master's degree class on my, my own stuff on resistance. And I'm walking around and I'm looking at all these signs and that, and I thought, wow, I learned that stuff here you know, even though I never taught music, it was just like, how do you make it as basic without getting stupid about it? It's just had a huge impact on my thinking.
0: That's really an incredible insight. So for example, you have a young student who's picking up a saxophone, doesn't even know how to hold it, which end to blow on anything else. And you had to learn how to break that down to make it comfortable because there is resistance to change. It's not natural to hold this big brass thing. That's absolutely right. Yeah, And and also, I mean,
1: I could feel it when I, I played a a trumpet to start off with. And I didn't know it. And I'm just blowing. And my dad would say, oh, just puff your cheeks out and do something. I mean, nothing was. And so I was getting really frustrated. And fortunately, the teacher would go, okay, Rick, bam, bam, bam. And so suddenly I could start to make a sound. And I remember when that happened, I go, whoa, you know, it was, and, and for a teacher then to be able to keep that momentum going is,
0: man, it's just, it's the absolute counterpart to the kind of work I do today. That's amazing. So what were some of the next stages then that you went through? Well, the next stage, I had gotten interested in working with the emotionally disturbed. And
1: I was in a graduate program that focused on emotionally disturbed kids in schools. And the philosophy of that program at the time was radical. I didn't realize it at the time. And they said, look, a lot of these kids aren't disturbed. It's the schools that are disturbed. I bought that philosophy then. I still buy it. And so the idea is that I would go out, I'd work in a school. And even though I'd be hired as a teacher, I'd be primarily a resource to the other teachers to help them. So if you can imagine, I just get out of school. My only job up to that point had been in the army and there was, I was a musician. So here I am, I've got no experience. And I'm walking into the school and going, hi, I'm here to help. And I'm saying this to teachers who had 30 years experience, you know, and you can imagine they would sit there and go, well, that's nice, young man. You sit down right there. And as soon as we need some help, we'll call on you. (laughs) And I I realized that I would come up with what I thought were brilliant ideas and nothing. I mean, I just could not get people interested. And after two years, I worked in a huge school system. I think it was the 10th largest in the US. I thought of a way to improve education for elementary school kids. So I wrote a proposal. Nobody asked me to do this. I wrote it and sent it to the superintendent. He didn't know me. Now, you can imagine the arrogance of somebody who has two years experience. Nobody's seen you work. And you're saying, hey, I think I know how you can improve. Well, so they did set up a meeting with the head of instruction. And I'm sure it was just to keep you know a teacher happy And I'm sitting there and he said, okay, so tell me about this work. And I said, well, you know, it's based on the the psychology of the eminent child psychologist, John Piaget. And I'm going on and on and I'm in selling mode. And he stopped me and he said, you know, Mr. Maurer, it might surprise you to learn that a lot of us here in the school system have known about Dr. Piaget's work for a long time. (laughs) And and he could have also said, and don't let the door hit you on the way out. And that's what really got me interested in why do people get interested in ideas other people have and why do people go, oh no, not him again. And so I studied and studied, I ended up becoming an organization development consultant and I continued my study on
0: the whole notion of uh, support and resistance for ideas and change. Hmm. I think that's fascinating. You had to turn the lens backwards instead of looking at Yeah, I hate it when that happens. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, what other insights could you share with our listeners on times that you kind of hit a career brick wall or a personal brick wall where you can't see around it, over it, under it? What are some sort of coping strategies to recollect your resources in those times? You know, there's there's a really big one. As I said, I'd been a musician. I was a musician in the army.
1: And then I didn't play for about 30 years. Mm. And I thought, okay, this is ridiculous. So I went on eBay. I bought a horn. I play a valve trombone. It's an unusual kind of trombone. And Got a, a professional trombonist. And I said, Look, I really want to learn to play jazz. And so I really took it seriously. And I still do. I mean, my horn is sitting like three feet away from me right now. And I loved it, but I was still doing my work. And this one year, I had three big consulting projects. And if you had seen the proposals and the contracts I had, you would have gone, Wow, this is great. And I ended up hating all three of the contracts. One of them, was because I said yes to something that just didn't interest me anymore. Ten years before, I would have been interested in the challenge of it, but it's, I felt like I've been there, done that. And I, I, I didn't think enough to say, you know, I'm not the right guy for this. The other two were organizations that were basically working in bad faith with each other. Management and labor said, oh, yeah, boy, we need somebody like you. But they didn't want that. They just wanted to be able to tell corporate or something, oh, hey, we brought this guy in, he's written books. And anyway, I was getting really frustrated. My wife said, well, you're playing music now, you love it. Why don't you back off from work a little bit? I mean, we can we can handle that. And I didn't do it. You know, I don't really want to retire, but I want to know that the money will be there if I would ever want to retire. What if I only take contracts that give me as much pleasure as music? Mm-hmm. And so when younger consultants call, and ask for advice. I tell them the story. I said, it's, I think it's really important to say yes to the stuff that one we're pretty good at and that we really have some energy for, because if we don't have the energy for it, the temptation is to just go through the motions and give kind of like a C plus level of performance.
0: And I think it's unfair to the clients of course, it took a while to get to that level of expertise and credibility where you could turn some things down and still know you could put food on the table. That's true. That's good. So it's a combination of the innate sense of meaning from the work you're doing and also the fact that you have a creative outlet in the music that has really rejuvenated and reprovided that energy for you. That's true. Well, how do you keep from then becoming complacent and flattening out? You know, you've been highly successful. could be pretty easy to just back away from the world and sit on a beach someplace with your, your trombone and work with that, um, how, how do you avoid that sense of flattening out and keep growing? That's a great question.
1: Well, first of all, when I started in my career, in my consulting career, which I did in 1978, I was doing the work of other people. Like I could present various leadership theories, various motivation theories, and, and I was a decent presenter, so I would get invited to do a lot of that. In 1996, I put out a book called Beyond the Wall of Resistance, which basically was saying, hey, what we think about resistance is wrong. It doesn't work. Here's what I think. And I was actually afraid to write the book because it was going against the grain. And that opened doors for me. People started saying, hey, could you come help us? Could you speak to us? And because I'm working on my own stuff, I never get to the bottom of it. And as long as that exploration is there for me, I'm excited about working.
0: Mm -hmm. So this idea of the wall of resistance and how you get beyond that, do you recall how that term came to you, the wall of resistance? Because it's very descriptive. I'm not sure I know
1: other than my name, Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R, means mason or builder of walls. Hmm. And M-A-U-E-R means wall. But I hadn't thought of that at the time. I wasn't trying to uh, sell my name. I think because a lot of my clients, when they talked about resistance, either said There's this wall, or just the way they talked about it, it felt like there's this wall, this impenetrable wall. We can't climb over it. We can't go through it. What do we do? And it's just, it was just a metaphor that was kind of always on my mind. And I probably heard a client say that actual word one time. What I identified were kind of three levels of resistance, which are also three levels of support. So let me describe them as resistance. Level one, which is the easiest one, is I don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying. Now, that's an easy one to solve. The problem is sometimes we think people are resisting because it's level one and it's something else. And so so what we do is we keep explaining it again and again and again. If they understand it, then the resistance is someplace else. Level two is I don't like it. And this is an emotional reaction based on fear. There's something about this idea that scares me. Hmm. I could lose my job. I could lose face. It happens at home. It happens at work. It's it's a deeply emotional reaction, and a lot of resistance comes right there from level two. And one of the problems with level two is I could go into level two and not even know it at the time. So let's say your listeners are I'm I'm the boss, or this is a meeting, and I d- I'm just talking about this one change, and everybody's hearing me. They're at level one. They're following along, and then I say the word downsizing. And it really doesn't make any difference what I say around that word. Everybody hears downsizing. And suddenly a lot of people go into level two. Oh my God, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? And they miss the next sentence where I say, and by the way, downsizing is not going to be a problem here. <laughs> you know. And so once we go into it, it sometimes takes a while for us to get there. But the other big problem is in organizations, it's usually very difficult for people to talk about this level two stuff. So imagine that you're running a meeting and you say, so I'd like your reactions. And somebody raises their hand and they're, man, they're 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 really deeply in fear mode and they'll go, they're not going to say, Rick, I'm having a level two reaction to what you're saying. (laughs) What they're going to do is go, Rick, could you go back to the last slide? I have a question about the budget projection. And somebody else says, "Could we pull up that timeline again? So I'm answering questions and afterwards, you know, we run into each other and you go, Hey, so Rick, how'd it go? And I well, went really well. In fact, I left time for Q and a, like you suggested people ask good questions. I answer them. I think we're moving ahead. There was a mismatch in the language. So I've got, I don't get it. I don't like it. Level three is I don't like you. And what that really means is I don't have trust and confidence in you to lead something like this. Like if I'm the boss, I may be saying some idea that you're nodding your head. That makes sense. Yeah, boy, it'd be good for the organization. I could see that how that'd be helpful. Oh, so you're going to support Rick? No, no way. The guy's a basket case. Every two months, he reads a new book. He comes up with a new idea and then there's no follow through. So you may like me well enough. The problem is I have this reputation. And so it's up to me to demonstrate that I'm different than their perceptions.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So there's the comprehension wall. Yeah. There is the fear wall that rarely manifests as fear. Yes. And then the third one is a trust wall. So I can see being aware of all three of those can help us couch our messaging, approach things differently, not be maybe as frontal with people and instead make it more collaborative and process of seeking a better outcome. Well, I'm sure in your work, you've encountered either managers or people that are part of an organization that they look at the hand they've been dealt and there's not even a face card, let alone an ace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you share any ideas on how to encourage people that are just really discouraged? They, they don't know what, what to do next.
1: Well, let me start with leaders because actually I, I work there more often. And a leader could be a project leader or a manager, anybody who needs to influence others to get the work done, which can be an awful lot of people. I want to find out what's going on at level one, level two, and level three in that organization relative to what's important to me so maybe it's a project or maybe it's just the day-to-day work so there are a lot of ways to get at that i want to know all right so when you try to get things done what does it look like for you with level one level two level three Hmm. and that i've got to know first and take it in and ways to get it could be you know step in their shoes or if there's somebody there you trust you could say hey what am I missing? You know, and you might even say, "Hey, what's going on? The do people—I I don't seem to be getting what they're saying, or they don't seem to get what I'm saying. What's where's the mismatch? What do you see?" So, but it has to be somebody you trust and who's willing to tell you, you know, truth as they see it. And
0: to me, often, just that information can be a catalyst for doing things differently. That's a perfect, perfect example. In fact, it's a perfect segue. I think that's what you'd call seizing moments of possibility, <laughs> right? That's That's nicely (laughs) done. I appreciate that. For our listeners, this is Rick's newest book. It's called Seizing Moments of Possibility, Ways to Trigger Energy and Forward Momentum on Your Ideas and Plans. Because ideas and plans are one thing, but they need energy to get momentum and to move forward. You're a real believer in personal energy and you embody it in a lot of ways. Can, Can you share a couple of ideas with us on how we can increase the energy, because you and I share a generational situation that some of our listeners hopefully will get to be as old as we are one day. (laughs) Um, And you're an inspiring example of how age is no limitation on energy, and age is no limitation on inspiration, nor on contribution. So what are some of the the life lessons you can share with us on that? I think we need to think like baristas, the coffee shop I love to go to is now
1: open again. And invariably, when I walk down there, I'll get in line and somebody's gonna order a latte. And you know, when I've been in line before, nobody's ever ordered a latte and said, uh, give me a latte, but hold the milk, because you can't do that. A latte <laughs> is a seamless blend of steamed milk and espresso. And when it's done right by a good barista, you can't tell where the coffee ends and the milk begins. It's, it's a wonderful blend of goodness. What I'm arguing in the book is we need to find ways to blend the human part, the support, the energy into the routine day-to-day stuff that we're already doing. I mean, it's okay to have pizza on Friday. It's okay to have an off-site retreat. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, and it could be helpful. But I'm saying in the most mundane tasks, what can you do to start to infuse energy? And I'll just give you a really simple example. One of my clients is a scientist, and he said when he makes presentations to the other scientists, he has to use PowerPoint because it appears like you're not prepared if you don't use slides. He said, I know that's stupid, but I got to do it. And he called me one day and he said, you know, here's what I did. He said, the presentation I was about to make was probably going to be about 50 slides. And I thought, what's the minimum number of slides I can get by with? And he said it was five. And he said, so I did five slides, the same audience, the same room, the same bad coffee. Nothing had changed except he went from 50 to five. And he said, what happened is I covered all the same material, but because there was all this space, there was room for conversation. And we had this rich conversation that never happens when you're just up there reading from the slide. Now, that's a really simple, no cost kind of thing. And there've got to be hundreds of those things that we can do, like people who actually leave time for question and answer, and then actually listen to the questions, actually have dialogue with people. I'll give you one other example. I had nothing to do with this, but I was giving a speech to a finance department, and the head of the department had come up with this idea for improving quality, and he went right to the workers, not to the managers, with this idea. And the managers were pretty upset by this. He, he just took away their power. And he realized that. And he said, hey, I'm gonna have a meeting next Monday. And here's some index cards. Just write down any questions, any concerns that you have anonymously and get them to my office two days beforehand so I have a chance to look at them. So he walks in to the meeting and he could have put all of those points on, on slides and he didn't. So he's got a handful of index cards. So it was pretty clear, these are the cards. You know, I think he put them in some categories, but he started with one. He read exactly what was there and then he responded honestly. I mean, sometimes it was, well, I disagree with you. Here's, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. Or I hadn't thought of it that way. Hmm. Or a lot of you ask about this and I really need to reconsider that. And I mean, when it started, there was this, I don't know, wall of silence. They didn't have to go on record uh, with their opinion. And within 15, 20 minutes, people started raising their hands going, Hey, uh, but what about such and such? And so suddenly they didn't need the cards anymore. They're having this conversation, like a hundred people are having a conversation with him in real time. Mm -hmm. And, And what I thought was brilliant about it is the index cards cost him a buck and a half. Maybe I don't know hardly anything. It was anonymous. He got it beforehand. So if anything was going to make him go all apoplectic. He could do it in the privacy of his own office. And then he respected them by reading what they actually said. And because he demonstrated that openness, they opened up. It comes from the uh, the advice of the great worldly philosopher and baseball player, Yogi Berra. And he said, you can observe a lot just by watching. (laughs) And so what I recommend is when you're not in the leadership position or running that part of a meeting, watch what goes on. And notice how people are influencing each other or not. It's easier to observe and
0: learn if we're watching the game film than if we're up at bat. And that's one of the best ways to overcome that third level of resistance is to be just truthful and honest. What a concept. And I love the idea of cutting back on the PowerPoint slides. You know, you actually have saved some lives today, Rick. <laughs> a big cause of mortality is death by PowerPoint. So right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, I want to encourage all of our listeners to do as I'm going to do, and, and that is to get your new book. What What is the, the website? That's the best way to find you.
1: Yeah, the website is rickmauer.com, and Maurer, it's, so it's R-I-C-K, Mauer is M-A-U-R-E-R, M-A-U-R-E-R.com. That'll take you to the homepage, and if you wait half a second, I don't know why there's a delay, but wait half a second, in the lower right-hand corner, you'll see a little box, and all you do is put in your first name and your email address and the book appears. Hmm. So you're not going through any sales funnel, there's no special offers, it's the book. And the reason I wrote it is I wanted it to be free. So my hope is that people will look at it and they'll tell their friends and then they'll all look at it. There's like nine application activities. So as you're
0: working on something, it gives you a chance to apply what's in the book in real time to things. That's fantastic. Rick, thank you so much for sharing with all of us today. I personally have some takeaways from this that I'm going to apply today. So I really, really do appreciate that. Wow. So thanks for energizing all of us, Rick, and for being part of the Action Catalyst. Oh, you're welcome. This is a real pleasure, Dan.
1: If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.